Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In February of 1915, 42-year-old George Joseph Smith stewed in his cell at the Kentish Town Police Station in London, England. A few days earlier, George had been arrested for using a fake name to marry his wife, Margaret Lloyd. But he was also under suspicion for a far more serious crime, murder. Scotland Yard detective Arthur Neal believed George was responsible for the deaths of all three of his wives, 37-year-old Bessie Williams, 25-year-old Alice Smith, and 38-year-old Margaret Lloyd. Somehow George had committed the murders without leaving behind a single shred of physical evidence. While the detective struggled to find proof of the man's guilt, rumors about George Smith spread through England. Reporters churned out countless stories detailing George's charms. His eyes became a particular point of focus. Some said they were hypnotic, used to lure women into his deadly trap. The press went so far as to speculate that George possessed supernatural abilities. It seemed like the only way he could have committed so many crimes without getting caught. But Inspector Neal knew George didn't have magic powers. He was simply an evil man driven by greed and cruelty. All the detective had to do was prove it. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on the Brides in the Bath murders. Last week, we followed Scotland Yard as they found the hidden link between three recently married women's deaths. This week, we'll learn how Britain's most notorious groom committed his crimes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In February 1915, Inspector Arthur Neal brooded in his office. The case before him seemed impossible to decipher. Scotland Yard had 43-year-old George Smith in custody, but they still had more questions than answers. Officers knew George had used various pseudonyms to court desperate women. Once he had them in his grip, he married them and made himself the sole benefactor of their wills and life insurance policies. Then, each woman mysteriously drowned while taking a bath. Inspector Neal knew these deaths couldn't be coincidental, but George claimed he and his wives were simply the victims of bad luck and law enforcement had no evidence to the contrary. Inspector Neal was struck by circumstantial clues and a very strong hunch. Luckily, he had the so-called real-life Sherlock Holmes on his side, forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury. Spilsbury was hard at work examining 37-year-old Bessie Williams' body, and her remains might reveal the killer's method. Uh, uh. <coughs> 
<laughs> my lord, it stinks in here. Oh, like cold death warmed over. That's precisely what we have. After two and a half years in the ground, Bessie Williams' body is badly decayed. No one said this was pleasant work, but I have discovered something curious. Oh, curious? How? The original doctor recorded that Bessie clutched a bit of soap in her hand. Even in death, the rigor mortis in her fingers to me indicates a sudden and violent death. Will that hold in court? No, but there must be more here. I need time with the body. We need to go to trial. What we can't do is rush. Now please, leave me to my experiments. <sighs> Spilsbury urged the detective to stand by, but Inspector Neal refused to wait around. He wasn't a scientist, but he was a seasoned detective. He could gather evidence of his own. Since the three women had allegedly died alone in their tubs... There were no eyewitnesses, aside from George, who wasn't talking. The best Neil could do was speak to the families of the deceased. He managed to contact Bessie Williams' uncle, and the pair met up at a local pub. Thank you for meeting with me, Mr. Mundy. My deepest apologies for the loss of your niece. Please call me Herbert. Can I get you a pint? I'm glad you asked me here today. I... I still miss Bessie terribly. She was such a sweet girl. Gullible. I knew that Williams or Smith or whatever his name is was a rat. But I didn't know he could do this. You didn't care for Bessie's husband? Care for him? I hated him. He left Bessie just after they married, two years before she died. Did you know that? There's been some confusion about the timeline. He met my niece, conned her into marrying him, and then tried to get her money. Bessie's father left her a trust, you see. Twenty-five hundred pounds. I looked after it for her because she didn't have the slightest head for money, but she wrote to me after the wedding asking for the lot. And George made off with it. Heavens no. My gut told me something was wrong. The man said that he was an antique dealer or an art restorer or something posh like that. Why did she need her trust then? I sent her 138 pounds, all that was legally due to her at the time, but I didn't even want to send that. And that's when George left her. That he did. It left Bessie in quite a state. Had to be carried up to bed by the doctor. We sent the police after him, but nothing came of it. Two years later, he showed up again, falling all over himself with apologies. Bessie took him back, the poor, simple thing. And then she was dead. Then he finally got the money he was after. All 2,500 pounds. This story proved that George had been carrying out the same pattern over and over. He married a woman. He took her to a doctor. He seized control of her finances. Then, when she died, he received a hefty payout. The sequence of events were practically identical with Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd. But there was something different about Bessie's case. George had disappeared during the marriage between 1910 and 1912. Through a letter, George told Bessie he had to leave her because she'd given him a sexually transmitted illness. 
George claimed he was so embarrassed by his wife's lack of virtue that he had to separate from her and seek expensive, time-consuming treatments, and she was to tell no one about it. But when Bessie encountered George at a seaside resort two years later, and seemingly by chance, he apologized for the accusations. He said he'd been wrong about the illness and had actually been out searching for the perfect home for Bessie because he wanted to give her the life she deserved. The letters from George to Bessie and from Bessie to Uncle Herbert highlighted just how gullible Bessie was. Inspector Neal felt certain that George had disappeared from Bessie's life for very different reasons. Unfortunately, the only person who knew where George really went between 1910 and 1912 was George himself, and he had no intention of cooperating with law enforcement. But for Inspector Neal, the pressure was mounting. Details of Bessie Williams' death scandalized the nation, leading the news cycle. Bernard Spilsbury was holed up running forensic experiments, the suspect refused to speak, and the only women who knew what had happened were dead. Or so the detective thought. Excuse me, Inspector Neal? What? My name is Alice Revel, and, well, I saw the story in the paper. You and half the country. I don't know how George Smith did it. Now I wish you people would stop asking. I'm sorry, Detective, but you see, I'm not a reporter. I'm, well, I'm another of George Smith's wives, it seems. You're his wife? When did you marry? September 17th, 1914. Just last year. In between Alice Smith and Margaret Lloyd, then. Interesting. Uh, I hate to ask this, Miss Rebel, but did your husband ever try to harm you? Well, not physically, but less than a week after our wedding, he disappeared. He left a telegram saying he had a job in Halifax and couldn't bear to say goodbye. He took all of my money and my jewelry, and I never heard from him again. I don't understand. What made him spare you? I can't say, sir. I'm just grateful to have escaped with my life. I'm not sure if it helps, but he called himself Charles James then. I can only wonder how many more names he might have had. Charles James? I need to write this down. Finally, Inspector Neal had a living witness. Revel could testify against George in court. Plus, George's additional alias of Charles James gave the detective a window into George's past. Using the man's long list of pseudonyms, Neal marched forward in his investigation. Through a series of inquiries at financial institutions across England, the detective uncovered 21 bank accounts belonging to George Smith, Nearly all of them had been opened under various aliases. And that wasn't all. So far, Inspector Neal had discovered four of George's wives, but even more spurned brides waited in the wings. And everyone was eager for revenge. Coming up, the women of George Smith's past come back to haunt him. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. 
In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In February of 1915, Scotland Yard detective Arthur Neal built a case against 43-year-old George Smith, a man he suspected of murdering three of his wives. With only circumstantial evidence, Inspector Neal was desperate to find a living witness. And in walked Alice Reevil. Reevil had survived her marriage with George, but he still made off with her money and jewelry. This sent Inspector Neal down a new path. More of George Smith's victims might be alive. The detective just needed to find them. Morning, Paige. How's our prisoner doing? Well, he won't shut up about his innocence. Starting to grate on my nerves a bit. And why should I shut up about my innocence? This is a miscarriage of justice! Oh, is that what it is? I think a miscarriage of justice would be for a bigamist to go free. Bigamy? What in God's name are you- I've just met your wife, Alice Reevil. She had quite a bit to say about you. Or at least about your alias. I don't know what you're talking about. Keep lying if you like. It won't do you any good. We've already gotten the name of your first wife, too. Caroline Thornhill? Ring a bell. I've done nothing wrong! Paige, we need to run the prisoner's fingerprints, see if we get any hits. In the meantime, I'll keep looking for Caroline. Yes, sir. Take care, George. I'm innocent! I'm innocent! Inspector Neal had done a deep dive into all available government records about George. It turned out he'd begun his streak of marriages a full 17 years prior, in 1898. At 25 years old, he'd married a woman named Caroline Thornhill. Neil believed she had unique insight into George's personality and would be an invaluable witness for the prosecution. But there was a big problem. Caroline Thornhill no longer lived in England. She'd moved to Canada an entire ocean away. Inspector Neal contacted authorities overseas. He requested they track Caroline down and send her to England to help with the case. But as World War I raged across Europe, hopes for her to travel dwindled. By 1915, the German army relied heavily on U-boats to conduct warfare, and ships crossing the Atlantic were prime targets. Regardless of how essential she was to the case, Caroline Thornhill would be risking her life to get to England. Neil could do nothing but wait on the woman's decision, and waiting frustrated him. 
It felt like every discovery led to another standstill. Meanwhile, the media frenzy wasn't slowing down. George Smith's name was plastered on headlines across England. He was practically a celebrity. Inspector Neal hated the scandalous publications, but they also worked to his advantage. Around this time, 37-year-old Edith Pegler contacted Bristol police. She'd been reading an article about George Smith and was shocked to realize she'd been married to the apparent murderer for the last seven years. Edith had met George in 1908 after she took a job as a housekeeper in his second-hand shop. George presented himself as a businessman poised to receive a healthy inheritance from an aunt. Edith, being about 30 at the time, was quite taken with him. A week after meeting, the pair were wed. But it wasn't long before their relationship took a strange turn. My apologies, Detective. I do better when my hands are occupied. I'm a bit distracted these days. You just get on with your cleaning, dear. I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. (laughs) George always had a funny way about him. I imagined our life together would be good, but as soon as we were married, he twisted it all about. How so? We moved almost as soon as we were wed, and then, just when we thought we'd put down roots, we moved again, and again, and again. We never stayed in the same place long. Uh, How did your husband make money? He'd set up a second-hand shop here and there, but those never did too well. Uh, Lift your feet, please. There's some dust. But he was always off on business, too. I was never very clear on what business was, but he'd be away for weeks at a time. When we did have money, he'd bring it with him. Where would he go? Oh, Weymouth in 1910, Hern Bay in 1912. Weymouth and then Hern Bay, you're sure? I am. He was away again both in 1913 and 1914, though I'm not sure where. (laughs) Excuse me, detective, I need to... (sighs) Shake out this rug! Inspector Neal buzzed with excitement. George's travels lined up precisely with the timelines of the drowned women's deaths. If Edith could testify that George had been away on business at the exact times Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd had died, it might convince a jury of his guilt. It was a major breakthrough for the investigation, But speaking with the detective wasn't easy for Edith. She loved George and was devastated to learn that he'd wedded other women. Bigamy was a serious crime at the time, and her husband was now facing years behind bars. It would be a far more devastating sentence if the detectives could prove murder. Neil sympathized with Edith, but he needed to press ahead. While he was still unable to get a hold of George's first wife, Caroline Thornhill, another woman came forward to say she'd been married to the con man. Flora Walter accepted George's marriage proposal in 1908, a few days after meeting him at the beach. He had her withdraw her money from the bank almost immediately, then disappeared with her life savings. Weeks passed in the investigation as Inspector Neal continued to dig through archives and question witnesses across England. Finally, on March 30, 1915, Caroline Thornhill stepped off a steamship in Liverpool. 
she'd braved the dangerous trek across the Atlantic to tell her story, and Inspector Neal was ready to listen. Caroline told the detective that George had been born into hardship. As a child, he stole to make ends meet. Sent to a reform school between the ages of 9 and 16, he fell in with a rough crowd. When he wasn't being bullied by peers, he was being beaten by teachers. Perhaps to escape the stigma of his past, George Smith changed his name to George Love. In 1897, he met and married Caroline, against the wishes of her parents. Although George had changed his name, he couldn't shake his old habits. He continued thieving, occasionally getting caught and spending time behind bars. He even coerced Caroline into stealing for him. During one theft, law enforcement caught the couple. George escaped and ran off, leaving Caroline to take the fall. She spent three months in jail while he walked free. When she got out, she tried to move on without her husband, but George found her and threatened to harm her. Fearing for her safety, she escaped to Canada in 1906 and began a new life. She managed to escape the killer's clutches, but she was just one in a long line of mistreated brides. And there was still one more wife waiting to come forward. Sarah Faulkner married George two weeks after meeting him in 1909. He presented himself as a man of means, but asked to borrow Sarah's savings to start an antique dealing business. Soon he was gone, taking all the money and Sarah's jewelry with him. Inspector Neal had confirmed seven marriages for George Smith. Most of the women had been subjected to abuse or devastating theft. Three of them had died. The detective interrogated these women, their families, and anyone else who observed George's various courtships. In total, Inspector Neal amassed 121 witnesses against George Smith. Still, the prosecution worried it wouldn't be enough. While they could prove that George was a bigamist and a thief, they still had no idea how he'd murdered three women without leaving behind any physical evidence. If the prosecution couldn't prove the method of murder, their entire case could evaporate. Luckily, forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury was about to make a major breakthrough. Please make a note that Bessie Williams' lungs have completely decomposed. Yes, doctor. I have no ability to evaluate any water content. Liver, spleen, and kidneys have all dehydrated. Hair still intact, but... Oh, the entire head's come away from the body. Show me your secrets, Miss Williams. I know you have something you're not telling me. Doctor, what if... what if it truly was a fit that killed her? Bite your tongue. I won't hear of it. But the soap, surely something like that can't be definitive. Look here, fella. Continue siding with that monster and I'll have you out on your rear. George Smith is a murderer. It's up to us to find out how he did it. Miss Williams here wants to tell us. We just need to listen closely. Spilsbury did his best to stay confident, but he was wavering. Bessie's body had been in the ground for two and a half years. It was possible that any further signs of George's method had rotted away. Or perhaps even worse, there was no method, and Spilsbury was chasing down an innocent man with terrible luck. Fear and doubt closed in on him until something caught his eye. 
shine your light this way. Her stockings are stuck to the skin here. But if I could just peel them down. Here, doctor? Yes, there, you see? I knew she'd show us. That goose skin on her thigh there. Something like that only occurs in violent, forced drowning. I thought that soap might tell the story, but this tells the whole book, chapter, and verse. Doctor, I don't understand. George Smith drowned Bessie Williams, and this goose skin will seal his fate. Now write it down, quickly! The tiny bit of soap clutched in Bessie's hand convinced Spilsbury to keep digging, and he'd found another piece of evidence that suggested a violent end. Spilsbury knew he was closing in on George's method, but in order to be sure, he needed to conduct one more experiment. And this test would be almost as deadly as George himself. Up next, Spilsbury goes to the extreme to convict George Smith. And now, back to our story. By March of 1915, forensic pathologist Bernard Spilsbury was closing in on the missing piece of the brides in the bath puzzle. He and Scotland Yard inspector Arthur Neal were convinced that 43-year-old George Smith had murdered three of his seven wives. They just had to figure out how he did it. So Spilsbury concocted an experiment based on the measurements he'd taken at each crime scene. Every one of George Smith's dead wives Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd had been found in the same position, laying on their backs, heads underwater, with their feet hanging over the edge of the tub. Bessie Williams' murder had been sudden, violent, and without any external markings. This led Spilsbury to form two theories for how George could have drowned her. He either pushed her head under the water and held it there, or he grabbed her ankles and pulled her feet upwards, dunking her head into the tub. Spilsbury needed to recreate the crime in order to test his theories. He and Inspector Neal collected the tubs from the three killings. Then, Spilsbury enlisted the help of a female volunteer with a strong swimming background. You think we'll need to test all three? Absolutely. No stone unturned. Miss, would you sit down in the first bath, please? Happy to. Neil, I'd like you to observe as I attempt my two suspected methods of murder. First, George Smith may have pressed down on Bessie Williams' forehead to submerge her under the water, like this. Excuse me, miss. (coughs) That was (coughs) most unpleasant. Yes. It's possible that method could result in drowning, but you see how her arms immediately went to the sides of the tub? A person could pull themselves out of danger that way or put up enough of a fight that signs of struggle would be apparent. I'm not sure that's our answer then. (sighs) I'm inclined to agree. We'll attempt the ankle method next. May I take hold of your ankles, miss? As long as you don't get fresh, doctor. All right, Neil. Please take note as I grab the young woman's ankles and pull. Interesting. She's made no attempt to pull herself out as she goes under. Why is she just lying there? Commitment to the experiment, I suppose? 
I'll pull her out and let her know we can move to the next tub. Very good work, miss. Hello? Dear Lord, she's unconscious. Neil, help me lay her on the floor. We need to resuscitate her. It took Spilsbury and Neil almost 30 minutes to revive the drowned volunteer. After she finally came to, she explained that when the pathologist had pulled her under by her ankles, water rushed into her nose and mouth. She immediately passed out and began to drown very quickly. With that, Neil and Spilsbury agreed they'd found out just how George Smith committed his crimes. It was finally time to face the killer in court. On June 22, 1915, the doors opened at Old Bailey Courthouse in central London. Huge crowds amassed outside. Hundreds of civilians were eager to observe the trial. People around the country were fascinated by tales of the mysterious George Smith. Everyone wondered how he could have conned so many women into marriage. Legends grew about his hypnotic eyes and charming personality. George became so famous that the press even approached him to purchase his story. His entire savings had been seized by police, and he had little means to pay for his defense. His lawyer, Edward Marshall Hall, thought it was a great idea, but the court refused to allow something so scandalous. By that point, Inspector Neal had undertaken one of Scotland Yard's most extensive investigations to date. He was ready to see this trial play out and he waited with bated breath for George Smith to enter his plea. We will have order in the court. Barrister Edward Marshall Hall for the defense, Barrister Archibald Bodkin for the prosecution. Gentlemen, may we begin? Yes, my lord. Yes, your honor. George Joseph Smith, you are being tried for the murder of your wife, Bessie Williams. While you are also suspected of the crimes of fraud, bigamy, and the murders of two other wives, I remind the court that these other charges cannot influence the trial here today. My lord, if I may interject? You have the floor. The prosecution requests an exception in this case. We'll need to discuss the murders of Alice Smith and Margaret Lloyd in order to demonstrate the defendant's systematic approach to these murders. We're seeking to prove that Bessie Williams' death was no coincidence. And thus, the details of the other cases are crucial. Objection! I'll allow it. It's settled, Mr. Hall. And now, if the defendant would inform the court how he pleads? Not guilty. George Smith approached the trial with the attitude of a man who was used to getting whatever he wanted. Apparently, neither he nor his lawyer knew how powerful a case Inspector Neal and Bernard Spilsbury had built against him. The prosecution's barrister, Archibald Bodkin, painted a picture of a man with a long history of crime, beginning in his early days as a troubled youth. As an adult, George moved from simple theft to conning women, preying on the desperation of the unmarried. He exploited romance to get what he wanted, sending flowery letters and turning up the charm to manipulate and deceive. Witness after witness corroborated George Smith's villainous character. Bessie's Uncle Herbert detailed him as a charlatan. Doctors described the terrible sight of each drowned woman. Solicitors explained how doggedly George Smith had pursued life insurance policies for his wives. 
Even members of the deceased women's families took the stand to face the man who was responsible for their grief. Alice Smith's father and Margaret Lloyd's sister lent their stories to the court. Then, on June 28th, six days after the trial began, Bernard Spilsbury approached the witness box. The forensic pathologist went through his findings, theories, and experiments. His investigation, along with testimony from several other sources, gave the jurors a clear picture of how George Smith committed his heinous crimes. After George Smith married Bessie Williams, left her, and returned two years later, he claimed he was ready to settle down. The couple moved to the coastal town of Hearn Bay in 1912, and George quickly ensured Bessie's will named him as sole inheritor. Then he set out to find them a small home where they could live. When the house they rented didn't include a bathtub, George went out and found one that did. A couple of months after they moved in, George enacted his deadly plan. On Saturday, July 13th, the two got up around 7.30 a.m. George encouraged his new bride to have a bath. Bessie, known for being highly suggestible, agreed. The tub wasn't connected to any plumbing, so George drew a bath by hand. He filled the five-foot-six cast-iron bath with buckets of warm, soapy water. When it was full, George helped her in. Bessie relaxed into the bath and reached for the soap. Suddenly, just as in Bernard Spilsbury's experiments, George grabbed Bessie by the ankles and pulled. Her torso and head were thrust under the water, and in a matter of moments, Bessie Williams had quietly drowned. She still clutched the piece of soap in her hand, and on her body, goosebumps erupted. The same goosebumps Spilsbury would observe nearly three years later. Just a few days after her death, George Smith collected the entirety of Bessie's inheritance. With that done, he changed his name and started the whole scheme over again. Soon, George met 25-year-old Alice Burnham. She was beautiful, with a sunny disposition, and George presented himself as a worldly gentleman to win her affection. After a brief courtship and civil wedding, she officially became Alice Smith. George immediately took his new wife to the doctor, then to a life insurance solicitor. He made sure he was the sole beneficiary of any money Alice could provide. Before long, George whisked Alice off to a honeymoon in Blackpool, a seaside resort on the western coast of England. He got to work finding them a boarding house and rejected every option until he found one with a bathtub. Then, on Friday, December 12th, George went through the motions that he already knew. What an absolutely perfect day, my love. This is a lovelier honeymoon than I ever could have dreamed. Bacon for breakfast, steak for lunch, and such a sweet little town to spend time in. Not nearly as sweet as my new wife. Oh, George. <laughs> I can hardly wait to get this postcard in the mailbox. I want my family to know what a wonderful time we're having. And I've asked the boarding house woman to draw you a bath while we're out. You'll have a nice, relaxing soak as soon as we're back. You're far too good to me. And you're far better than I deserve. Let's hurry now. 
I want to get you back when the bathwater's still nice and hot. Alice couldn't believe she'd landed such an adoring husband. As soon as they returned to the boarding house, George helped her into the bath. How's that, my love? <sighs> Absolutely perfect. I've never felt so relaxed. Good. You lay back, rest your head, and I'll just tickle your feet. <laughs> oh, you cat! Stop that! <laughs> oh, such ticklish little feet. <laughs> oh, and what about these ankles? Stop! Oh, stop! You know how ticklish I am! Wait, stop! What are you... Like he had with Bessie, George grabbed Alice's ankles and pulled her under. With no way to fight back, the young woman succumbed to the water. While her body grew cold in the tub, George Smith slipped downstairs to chat with the boarding house owners. It was a way for him to establish an alibi. If he'd been seen downstairs while Alice was bathing, no one would suspect he'd also just been in the bathroom drowning his wife. A few minutes later, George pretended to find Alice in the tub. He cried out for a doctor and played the part of the grieving husband. The details of Alice's death mirrored those of Bessie Williams almost exactly. And one year later, he went through the same pattern with Margaret Lloyd. The case against George Smith was rock solid. Eight days after the trial began, the judge tasked the jury with deciding the man's fate. He asked them to consider all the testimony they'd heard and the many coincidences between the three deaths. After just 22 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict. On July 1st, 1915, George Joseph Smith was found guilty of the murder of Bessie Williams. The judge sentenced him to death. The trial sealed George's fate, and it also solidified Bernard Spilsbury's place in history. He would become known as one of the most important forensic pathologists in Britain. His methods are still studied today, and his experiments shape the course of forensic science. About two months after the trial wrapped up, on August 13th, George Joseph Smith was hanged at Maidstone Prison. The reign of one of the most infamous serial killers in British history was finally over, and thousands of women looking for husbands could finally breathe a sigh of relief. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on George Joseph Smith and the Brides and the Bath Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jane Robbins' book, The Magnificent Spillsbury and the Case of the Brides and the Bath, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Solve Murders was written by Kayla Westergaard-Dobson, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Ellie Schiff, Kimlin Tran, Laith Walshlager, and Jen Wong. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.